today. Am I on? Okay, all right. Good morning. It's great to be one of the young chaps to share with you today. You guys didn't laugh at that the first time, so I'm going to say it again. (laughs) We'll be in our scripture today for uh, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. I'll go there in just a moment, but if you'd like to go ahead and turn there and stick your thumb in the page, you can do that. And while you're doing that, I'll tell you about a story called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this story, C.S. Lewis, the author, tells about a, a young child from our world, Lucy Pevensey, who, who goes to Narnia and meets someone from that world named Mr. Tumnus. And in the course of their conversation, Mr. Tumnus explains to Lucy that his world has been ruled by a ruthless, deceitful, white witch. And by her powers, she has made Narnia, a place that is always winter, but never Christmas. And even if you've never read the story before, I would imagine that you have some sense about what that means, that you know what that might be like. So my question for us today is, where does that sense or that feeling come from? And what would happen if we were to explore it together. This is a question that C.S. Lewis himself explored. He was an academic and an atheist and he thought we lived in a world that was too inharmonious and too imperfect for there to be any kind of God. And so he began to try to make sense of that. He began to ask, well, where do I get this idea and what would happen if I explored it? And he went on to say, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? He pondered. Where does that feeling or that sense come from? And what would happen if I explored it. So let's do that together in our scripture, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus again by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. 
So the rich man answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, the rich man said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is a a morbid story. Merry Christmas. (laughs) I, I did not mix up my holidays. This is not going to be a Halloween sermon, but I want to look into this passage together because I think often it is taught as if it's trying to teach us about the afterlife and about what exists after this world. And maybe there are some nuggets of truth there about that, but I really think the point of this story, more than anything else, is for us to think about or to experience a role reversal or a flipping of the script. And I think there's three indications in this story that can help us see that. The first is that we see that the rich man lived in luxury. And in fact, the words that are used here are words that seem to describe someone who is feasting and who feasts often. So we see that with him at the beginning of the story and then at the end of the story, we're told that Lazarus is seated by Abraham's side. And this again is an indication that Lazarus is feasting. If you have an older translation of your Bible, you might have seen the word or or the words that Lazarus was, was at Abraham's bosom. And it's a confusing phrase for us, but for the first century, the listeners would have totally understood what that meant because when they went to gigantic feasts that lasted a really long time, they would, they would sit at tables that were close to the floor and they didn't have chairs. So they would recline against one another. As they, as they ate. We're actually told that John reclines against Jesus at the Last Supper in one of the gospel stories. It's very similar to if you've ever sat in a field with a friend and you sat back to back in order to support one another. It's that idea. The point is, at the beginning of the story, we see the rich man at a feast. But by the end, it's Lazarus we see at a feast. And he's at Abraham's feast. It's a role reversal, a flipping of the script. That's the first indicator. The second indicator is the fact that at the beginning of the story, it's Lazarus who is left out in the remote, cold darkness. And then by the end of the story, it's the rich man who's left out in the remote, cold darkness. We're told that the rich man is in Hades. You might have a Bible translation that says he's in hell. But the actual Greek word is used as the Greek word for Hades. And a first century hearer, again, would have understood completely what they meant. For us, we might have to look more at what we understand the Roman word of the Greek word Hades to be. The Roman word for Hades is the word Pluto. And just as we understand that the dwarf planet Pluto is out in the remote, cold darkness, far removed from the light and the life and the party here on earth, that is how the first century hearers would have understood this idea of Hades. 
So the next time you're with a friend or a group of friends, if you want to experience what this is like, what Hades is like, the remote, cold darkness, the next time you're with friends and someone says, man, it's hotter than Hades in here, you can say, well, you know what? Literally, what that actually means is it's probably quite comfortable. Say that to your friends and you won't have any friends anymore. You'll experience the the cold darkness, the cold shoulder. They won't want to be around you. The point of this is, again, at the beginning of the story, Lazarus is in the remote, cold darkness, and now by the end, it's the rich man who's in the remote, cold darkness. The third thing that indicates this to us is the rich man's description that he's in agony in this fire. And this, again, might make us think of hell, and maybe Jesus is mixing metaphors here for our benefit, but for, for the first century hearers, they would not have understood it that way. Again, we're, we're reminded by Abraham in verse 25 that what, the, what Lazarus received, the rich man now receives, and what the rich man received, Lazarus now receives. So what can we possibly imagine that Lazarus experienced that is like what the rich man describes being in agony in this fire? Have you ever skinned your knee and had it as it's healing, it rubs up against the fabric of your pants and it hurts so much. Or maybe you've had a really bad sunburn and someone has patted you on the shoulder at church that day. Or maybe you've had an infected wound of some kind. And how would you describe the pain for each of those experiences? It burns, right? Is it just me? It burns, it hurts, it burns. And I think that's what the first century listeners of this story might have really imagined, a role reversal, a flipping of the script. So more than explaining the afterlife to us or trying to give us some kind of nugget of wisdom about it, I think really what is happening here is that Jesus and the Holy Spirit really wants us to encounter what's happening, to feel this story, to experience it, and to ask, where does that feeling come from? And what would happen if we explored it? What would happen if we tried to make sense of this story? There are some who speculate that it was by being moved and disturbed by this very story is what inspired Charles Dickens to write his great classic, A Christmas Carol, that asking the question, what if Eliezer, as as Lazarus would have been known by his Hebrew name, what if Eliezer was sent to Ebenezer. There are some who speculate that that Charles Dickens took this very story from Jesus and, and flipped the script. And as he describes to us, as he describes to us Ebenezer Scrooge in his book, A Christmas Carol, he tells us, Ebenezer Scrooge is a a tight-fisted, a squeezing, a wrenching, a grasping, a scraping, a clutching, covetous old sinner. And we learn very quickly up front that, that Scrooge is immovably set in his ways. There's no argument or there's no way to convince him to change. There is nothing that you can do. He's so set in his ways that, that even if you were to say to Ebenezer Scrooge, Merry Christmas, Mr. Scrooge, he would reply, I can work my will on every idiot that goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be hmm, boiled in his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. And if you were to ask 
Mr. Scrooge, what right do you have to be dismal on Christmas? You're rich enough, he would tell you. <laughs> what right do you have to be merry? You're poor enough. What's Christmas time for you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself one year older, but not an hour richer? And if you were to tell Mr. Scrooge to, to count his blessings and to be benevolent to those less fortunate around him, he would reply, There are prisons. There are workhouses. I don't make myself merry at Christmas, and I cannot afford to make idle people merry. I pay for the prisons and the workhouses. They cost enough. If they are bad off, they must go there. And if they had rather die, perhaps they should do it and decrease the surplus population. So we're faced with this dilemma. What would change a man like this? Again, it's not by arguing with him. It's not by trying to explain things with him. It is simply for him to come to his senses through the experiences that are given to him and the guidance that is given to him by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. They will take him, sometimes literally leading him by the hand throughout scenes in his life and the lives of those around him. And in the course of his night with the spirits, Scrooge becomes both an active and a passive observer. He's an active observer because he's literally there in the scenes and he's experiencing what everyone in the scene is experiencing. If they're laughing, he's laughing. If they're crying, he's crying. He is feeling whatever is happening. But he's also a passive observer because they don't know that he's there. And he can't impact or change anything that's happening on the stage or on the screen in front of him. So he's both an active and a passive observer, just as you and I were, are with any book or movie that we read or, or even as we read the Bible. So again, with this in mind, as Scrooge is going throughout the night, as he's taken to, to visit old work companions and an old love, he's filled with joy and he laughs and he dances along with them and he, he wants to continue and he wants to stay there and he says to the spirit, oh, there's a game, spirit. Only one half hour more, only one. He wants to stay, but he moves on. And then as he visits another scene, a scene filled with heartbreak of an old love that has left him, his heart is filled with despair. And he pleads with the spirit. Spirit, show me no more. Conduct me home. Why, why do you delight to torture me? Remove me from this place. I cannot bear it. Take me home. Leave me. Haunt me no longer. And as he visits the home of his employee, Bob Cratchit, and he sees their meager means for Christmas, and as he sees Bob Cratchit's weak and ailing and ill son, Tiny Tim, he looks to the spirit and he begs, Spirit, tell me, Will the small boy, Tim, will he live? And he begins to be moved with compassion. And as the night closes, Scrooge has already begun to experience change. So much so that when the final ghost appears, he says, Ghost of the future. I fear you more than any specter I've seen. But I know your purpose is to do me good. 
And as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear your presence. And I do so with a thankful heart. And as the ghost of Christmas future takes him to the streets of London, and as he visits people there discussing the death of an ungraceful man, and then as he goes from there to a graveyard to, to visit an unvisited gravestone, he says to the spirit, I see. I see, spirit. The fate of this unhappy man is not unlike my own. My way tins that, my life tins that way now. Spirit, hear me. I am not the man I was. I have changed. Why do you show me this if I am past all hope? A man's course is foreshadow certain ends, but if the course changes, then the ends will change. Say it is so with what you show me, spirit. And as he wakes up on Christmas morning, Scrooge realizes that he has been given a second chance, the second chance that the rich man's brothers were not afforded. And with gratefulness in his heart, Scrooge promises, I will live the past, the present, and the future. The spirit of all three will live within me. Oh, thank you for the Christmas time in heaven above. Oh, thank you, Jacob. I say it on my knees. Thank you, Jacob Marley. Ladies and gentlemen, Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> and you can pay a visit to Ebenezer Scrooge this afternoon at the, at the VBC for Fantasy Playhouse's rendition of A Christmas Carol. They are sold out, but you can tell them that you know a guy and that Ebenezer Scrooge preached a sermon in church today. Ebenezer Scrooge is changed not by a guilt trip, but by coming to his senses. He's visiting scenes that have already been written, but he's invited in those scenes to live them, to experience them, to feel them. And the irony is that we get the same trip that he does as we are reading the book or watching the movie or watching the play unfold on stage. We are also active and passive observers. We are invited to feel the despair in the, some of the scenes and the joys in others, and we are invited to to really live and feel what it's like, but we're passive observers as well. We can't change what is unfolding before us. Dickens, through this story, allows us to see, to get a glimpse where this feeling comes from and to get a glimpse into what it might look like if we explored it. About 100 years after the publication of A Christmas Carol, there would be another story that would come along Another story that would flip the script on this story of Jesus and now flip the script on a Christmas carol. It was a story that was directed by a famous director, Frank Capra, starring a leading man, Jimmy Stewart. You know it as, as the name, It's a Wonderful Life. And you might recognize that it is a unique retelling of the Scrooge story, but the script has been flipped. In this case, it is the George, Bill, George Barely, who is the Bob Cratchit character who is visited by a spirit. The, the Mr. Scrooge character is Mr. Potter, and he's unredeemed throughout the story. And in this particular case, the spirit, Clarence, takes George Bailey onto different scenes throughout his life. And in this version of the story, people can see him. People can interact with him. But they have no recollection of who he is because it's as if he doesn't 
exist. The weightiness of that story for George Bailey is not the despair that exists because of his presence in the world, as it was for Scrooge. The weightiness for George Bailey is the despair that is present in the world because he does not exist. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and he says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And when we hear that word, God breathed, we usually hear it and we we probably think God dictated. But the word that Paul uses here is the word pneuma. And it is a word that means breath, but it also is a word that means spirit. It is the word that is elsewhere translated as the Holy Spirit. So what if we were to see the Bible, not only as God dictated, but as God spirited. This is the challenge that we miss sometimes when we can read the Bible and we come to it only to analyze it or or only to look for proofs and truths. We can sometimes miss the story that it's telling us, this this God-spirited story. Perhaps you've heard about a Utah school board recently that, that banned the Bible from their elementary and middle school class or libraries because of its depictions of vulgarity and, and violence. They've, they've since overturned the decision uh, after outrage by parents, but let's be honest, there is some vulgar, vulgarity and violence in the Bible, but what if that's the point? What if there are some scenes in the Bible that we are invited to be active, passive observers of, that we are invited to be disturbed by? What if there are some scenes in the Bible that that we are invited to feel the intensity and feel the pain so that we can be taken to other scenes where we can feel the joy and feel the hope and then to begin to ask, where does this come from and what what would happen if we explored it? What would happen then if we did that? Perhaps we would be changed like Scrooge, to declare that I'm not the person that I was or through the result of doing that, to see what we can be, to see our potential as humans and to say, I will not be the person that I'm capable of being. What if that was the point of some of the passages of vulgarity and violence? Or what if the point, like with George Bailey, was for the the spirit to take us to those scenes And then to begin to wonder what would life look like, not if if we didn't exist, but if Jesus didn't exist, if there was no first Christmas, where would we be? The Romans ate vulgarity and violence for breakfast. How do we get from them to us without the work of the Spirit in us and in the hearts and minds of those who've come before us for centuries, for millennia? What if this were the journey we were being asked to take in the scriptures, not for proofs and truths, but for encounters and for experiences, to be taught, to be corrected, and to be saved, as Timothy says to Paul, and as we see with George Bailey and Ebenezer Scrooge and Lazarus. This is what Abraham is talking about when he says to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets, and so do we. We even have somebody who's risen from the dead. 
Maybe if we explored that and we leaned into that and we felt that and we asked that question, maybe we can find, like Scrooge, like Bailey, and like Lazarus, a family and a feast. If we were to come to our senses or to begin to make sense of this, when we, when we use those phrases, a lot of times what we, what we mean by those is we want to wrap our minds around something or we want to understand something, but to, to literally come to your, I'm going to be that friend, okay, to literally come to your senses means to be, to be grounded, to be aware, to be awakened to what is happening around you, to, to pay really close attention to what you're seeing, to what you're hearing, to what you're tasting, to what you're smelling, to what you're feeling, to come to your senses doesn't mean to entrap it and wrestle with it in your mind, but to be awakened by it in your very body and soul. And if we were to do that with God's spirit, and we were to allow that spirit to take us on a tour of the scriptures, we'd see perhaps one more flipping of the script with this rich man and Lazarus story. Because perhaps the spirit would take us to Philippians chapter 2 where there we would see that there is a rich man who looks down and and sees poor Lazarus. And though that rich man is in his father's house, and though he's equal with his father, he considers that something not to be tightly grasped. So he takes the form of poor Lazarus and takes his place. And perhaps that same spirit would take us on a tour to Isaiah chapter 53, where we would see that rich man covered in wounds. But they are wounds meant for us. They are wounds that are a result of our sins and our transgressions. But, but it's by these rich man's wounds that we are healed. Or maybe that same spirit would take us to the very first Christmas, to a stable that's in the remote, cold darkness, because We didn't have room for the rich man. And maybe that spirit would take us to the very first Easter, where that rich man left the remote, cold darkness of a tomb. Because when he came at Christmas time, we did not have for him a room. But as he promised in John chapter 14, he left that remote, cold darkness of that tomb to go to prepare for us a room. And what if in John chapter 14, as we're there, we, that spirit shows us that we've been given that spirit to be a comfort so that when that spirit takes us to Psalm 23 and we see that we are experiencing something that looks like and feels like the valley of the shadow of death, we can know that we're not alone. And we can, we can go through that holding the hand of that spirit, knowing that on the other side, there's a feasting table prepared for us even in the presence of our enemies. And that if we make it there, we can dwell in the house of our Lord, the house of the rich man forever. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. This is what we sing about. It's what we feast about. It's what we build 40 foot tall trees about. The rich man Seeing poor Lazarus, seeing you and me, and coming to his aid. God sends his spirit for us to experience this, 
for us to live this, for us to feel this, for us to ask, where does this feeling come from and what would happen if I explored it? I told you about C.S. Lewis exploring that. And he drew another conclusion from exploring that question. He said this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Do you want to know why you love Christmas? Because you were made for it. You were made to be at the table of the Father feasting. You were made to be around the throne of the Father singing. You were made to be reclining along with your brothers and your sisters. You were made for it. And every Christmas, a spirit, God's spirit, takes us on a tour of that which we were created for. Life with God and life with others. The spirit tells tells Scrooge that he is visiting shadows of the things that have been, but every Christmas we get to experience shadows of the things that are to come. There is a feast coming at the rich man's house. You are invited. All you have to do is come to your senses. Come home to warmth, to light, to life, to love, to the party, to a family, to the place that you and I were made for. All you have to do is accept the invitation. Again, to the place that you know in your heart, that you feel in your heart, you were made for all along. A place that is always Christmas, but never, never, never winter.